Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds family. Dan Ambender here. This episode continues the Cardio Nerds Lipid Series, which is a comprehensive, all-you-need-to-know series led by co-chairs Dr. Rick Ferraro, Director of Journal Club for the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, and Dr. Tommy Das, Program Director of the Cardio Nerds Academy and Cardiology Fellow at the Cleveland Clinic. It's produced in collaboration with the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. In this episode, we will take a deep dive into the Reduce It trial with Dr. Peter Toth. Stay with us. But friends, before we dive into this episode, we are so proud to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Wang as Cardiner's Fit Trialist. As you know, the Cardiner's Clinical Trials Network was created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with fit, personal, and professional development. We are now proud to have 19 sites worth of Cardiner's Fit Trialists and matching PI mentors to support Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. Cardiner's Fit Trialists are nominated by site PIs and Dr. Jeffrey Wang was nominated by Dr. Alana Morris to represent Emory University. And and it's just been so amazing to reconnect with Jeffrey under the auspices of these trial because Jeff and Dan and I, we all go way back in residency from our OSO residency days. And we were just uh, just having a great time reflecting on the amazing times that we have spent together. But let's come back to the present day. Jeff, welcome to Cardio Nerds. Would you please introduce yourself and share what you're most proud of as a Cardio Nerds Fit Trialist? Thank you so much, Ahmed. Thank you so much, Dan. It's such a pleasure to be here, and it's been such an honor to have been selected by Emory to be part of the Fit Trialist. So I graduated LSU Medical School in 2015, and then after that, I went to Hopkins, the Osler Internal Medicine Program, where I met Ahmed and Dan from 2015 to 2018. And then after that, from 2018 to 2021, I did critical care medicine at the NIH Clinical Center in Bethesda. And then my career goal is to be a critical care cardiologist. And so now I'm finishing up the cardiology training at Emory currently. And one of the most exciting things to be that, that I'm excited about to be a fit trialist is to have a real world experience in learning how to enroll patients into a clinical trial. And I think that's useful for both industry sponsored trials and also both like investigator NIH trials as well. I think understanding these skills is a huge benefit and something that as a fellow, we don't often get the chance to learn. Jeff, that is so exciting to hear. And it's amazing to see that you're achieving and living your career dreams. So, you know, Jeff, mentorship is a key part of this program. Can you tell us a little bit about what working with Dr. Morris has meant for you? Yeah, so to put it truly, Dr. Morris is the whole package. So I met Dr. Morris kind of like towards the end of my critical care fellowship when I was trying to go transition from translational research at NIH to more clinically focused research at NIH. And so I reached out to Dr. Morris early on during the application process, and she always had time to meet with me and talk with me. And she really pours her heart she has a huge heart and she pours her heart into everything she does. You know, if you don't know her, she's super passionate about everything. And so mentoring me has been no different. And so essentially she will meet with me twice a week to discuss projects, once in the large group meeting and once in an individual. And she always kind of thinks about the long-term and the short-term as well. I remember one time early on when we met, she was telling me that, you know, part of this like research fellowship is to not only make sure you're getting something out of it, but also when you're applying for your first job, you can go to, you know, the director of cardiology and say, this is what I can bring to the table. And so it's been such a pleasure because she really looks up for you in the short term, the long term, and then she also puts her heart into mentoring each of her mentees as well. Uh, Jeff, it is so great to hear about your relationship with Dr. Morris. And, you know, we've heard so many wonderful things about her. And the first time we heard her name was actually from one of our dear mentors, Dr. Kimberly Manning. But to you know, hear a personal anecdote like that is always just so heartwarming. Jeff, thank you so much for the work you're doing as a fit trialist. You've already been working hard enrolling patients. And we're just so excited to see where this program goes and how you grow with it. Thank you guys so much. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Cardio Nerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. This episode is made possible by unrestricted support from Amarin. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes. And the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by Cardio Nerds without external bias. And without further ado, Tommy, take it away. 
Hi, Cardinal Nerds. Welcome back to our Lipid series. This is Tommy Doss. Now, if you've been listening along, you already know that elevated triglycerides are an important risk factor for atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, and that significant efforts are being made into identifying and developing therapies that address hypertriglyceridemia. Today, we are excited to jump into an illuminating discussion on the REDUCID trial and its impact on preventive cardiology and the care of our patients. Joining us are two very special guests and experts in this area, Dr. Peter Toth and Dr. Lisa Hussein. Rick, will you do the honors? Of course. I have the absolute pleasure to introduce Dr. Aliza Hussein. Dr. Hussein is currently a cardiology fellow at Baylor College of Medicine. She received her medical degree from Aga Khan University and completed her internal medicine residency at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center before moving to Texas. Once there, she completed her atherosclerosis and prevention fellowship at Baylor and is now completing her second year of cardiology fellowship there prior to pursuing interventional and heart failure training. Just incredible work. Thank you, Aliza, for joining us. Thank you for having me, Cardio Nerds. I get the distinct honor of introducing Dr. Peter Toth. Dr. Toth is a director of the preventive cardiology at the CGH Medical Center in Sterling, Illinois, and a clinical professor in family and community medicine at the University of Illinois School of Medicine. He is a past president of the National Lipid Association and the American Board of Clinical Lipidology. He is current president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology. He has authored and co-authored over 500 publications and has edited and co-edited 19 textbooks in the field of cardiovascular disease prevention. And as we learned pre-recording, Dr. Toth is also an avid traveler and master photographer. Thank you, Dr. Toth, for joining us today, and we are excited to learn about triglyceride management. Welcome back to Cardio Nerds. Well, thank you, Elise, and thank you all, Cardio Nerds. Thanks again, Dr. Toth. Really looking forward to this. Tommy, how about we dive right in with a quick case? All right, let's do it. Let's get into a case here. So first up, we've got Mr. Tuda Gordon. He's a 65-year-old man. He's got hypertension, diabetes, CKD, coronary disease, and a prior drug-eluting stint placed in his LAD. He's been on rosuvastatin 20 milligrams a day and enzetimibe 10 milligrams a day. Now, he recently had a second stint placed in the setting of unstable angina. He's in your clinic. His vitals are BP of 125 over 80. His BMI is 32. And on his lipid panel, total cholesterol is 130. His LDLC is 60. HDL is 30. And his triglycerides are 200 milligrams per deciliter. Now, he's reasonably pretty anxious by having another event. And he wants to talk to you about what are some safe and effective measures to prevent him from having another event and lower his risk going forward. Dr. Toth, we all see patients in clinical practice who have either had a cardiovascular event or are at high risk for future events. We routinely prescribe statins, knowing there's tremendous data for their pleiotropic cardiovascular effects, as discussed with you on a prior episode. But unfortunately, we know that statins and LDLC in general don't prevent all future ischemic events. And we know from prior, primary, and secondary prevention clinical trials of statins that even in high-intensity statin populations, there was considerable residual risk for future cardiovascular events. So we do need to think beyond LDLC to some degree. How do you think triglyceride factors into this? Is it simply a marker of risk or does it have a direct causal effect on atherosclerosis? Yeah, great question, Rick. And obviously residual risk is complex. There's residual risk from other lipids like remnant lipoproteins and triglyceride, from elevated blood pressure, from impaired glycemic indices in the setting of metabolic syndrome and diabetes. Of course, there's residual inflammatory risk, as we have seen in post-hoc analyses from a number of trials, such as prove it and improve it. But when it comes to assessing the lipid profile for what else can we do to improve the overall risk profile of a very high-risk patient like this, who's basically coming through the door as something of a train wreck disaster. I mean, let's face it, this is a very sick guy with diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease, dyslipidemia, established coronary disease, and his LDL 60, and yet he still needed another stent. So you have to dig and you have to identify where else is risk coming from. And obviously triglycerides have become the important component of risk assessment. And there are many lines of evidence that point us toward triglycerides. 
We know from genome-wide association studies, Mendelian inheritance studies, uh, that not only triglycerides, but also remnant lipoproteins, which are triglyceride-enriched lipoproteins, these are precursors to LDL, like BLDL, BLDL remnants, IDL, or intermediate-density lipoprotein. These are enriched with triglycerides. And when you look at major prospective longitudinal cohorts from around the world, triglycerides and remnants consistently come up as independent predictors of future cardiovascular events, even after very comprehensive risk factor covariate adjustment. So what is it about triglycerides? Well, triglycerides are enormously complicated. And I say that as a biochemist, if you think about it this way, there are many short, medium, and long-chain fatty acids that comprise fatty acid metabolism. If you think about the number of different fatty acids that comprise your typical Western diet, and then you think about the combinations of different chain lengths, different levels of oxidation, double bonding, and then cis-trans transformations of some of these fatty acids, and the fact that a triglyceride can condense with three different fatty acids, you begin to see very quickly that there is an exponential rise in the complexity of triglycerides very quickly. And certainly there are certain disease states that carry with it specific triglyceride and fatty acid signatures. But to really take account of individual types of triglycerides and fatty acids and their role in atherosclerosis, this gets to be a major, major problem. So yes, triglycerides and remnant lipoproteins have emerged as important risk factors. And we have a lot of people studying this. So why would triglycerides per se be risk factors? So remnant lipoproteins are not LDL, but like LDL, remnant lipoproteins can be taken up into the subendothelial space of the arterial wall. They can be oxidized. Or in the case of remnants, they don't have to be oxidized, which is a difference from LDL in order to be scavenged by macrophages. So that's another level of complexity because LDL, in fact, has to be oxidatively modified in order for it to be a scavenging target of macrophages. Remnants do not have to be modified. They can be scavenged independent of any altering chemical reaction that might occur in the subendothelial space. And these remnant lipoproteins, of course, can form lipid droplets in the same way that LDL particles do within macrophages, leading to the formation of foam cells and, of course, early fatty streaks. Biochemically, triglycerides are very interesting because in the subendothelial space, there can be a lytic reaction, which can lead to the formation of diacylglycerol and an oxidized fatty acid both of which can be pro-inflammatory. And we know that atherosclerosis is essentially an inflammatory disease. And triglycerides also appear to be actually quite toxic when available in high concentration within serum and can independently induce endothelial cell dysfunction. And when the endothelium is getting sick, an arterial wall is off to the races with atherogenesis. Because now you're cranking up inflammation, you're increasing the expression of adhesion molecules, you're promoting white cell flux across the endothelial barrier into the subendothelial space. So high concentrations of triglycerides, just like high concentrations of glucose, the two most important uh, oxidizable substrates in our body, too much of a good thing is bad. So yes, triglycerides can be very toxic. They come in many shapes and sizes. I'm sure that each variety of triglyceride has some differential capacity for inducing endothelial dysfunction, the formation of a pro-oxidative environment, the promotion of inflammation, et cetera. This work is still in its infancy, but it's cardio nerds, it's you guys in fellowship who are going to be the next wave who have to figure this stuff out. Thank you, Dr. Toth. That was amazing. I consider myself a big triglyceride nerd, and I think that was a phenomenal summary of 
triglycerides and atherosclerosis. I have yet to read a review that's that succinct and so precise. Loved it. And so when we talk about triglycerides, we also talk about the multiple therapies out there that are FDA approved for triglyceride lowering. But in today's discussion, we'll sort of be focusing a little bit on omega-3 fatty acids. In most formulations, and you being a biochemist, you know, you would know this more than anyone. There are two types of omega-3 fatty acids. There is the eicosapentaenoic acid, or EPA, and then there is docosahexaenoic acid, or DHA. Just like that beautiful summary, Dr. Toth, if you could just explain to our listeners what the biological differences between EPA and DHA is and how they may explain their differing role in cardiovascular disease. We've mentioned this in prior lipid series, but a brief review just for our current listeners would be amazing. Yeah, so EPA and DHA are both polyunsaturated fatty acids, and it's absolutely wondrous what these two long-chain polyunsaturated fatty acids can do. And it's actually very puzzling, I'll say at the outset, that studies with DHA haven't worked because... DHA is actually an upstream substrate for the formation of a variety of protectins, macrophage-derived marisins, and other small molecule pro-resolving type products that in a very orderly fashion don't just inhibit inflammation, they step-by-step bring it to resolution. And there's a huge difference between the two. The downstream products of DHA metabolism represent a remarkable diversity of molecules that bring a very orderly resolution to inflammation. And EPA does this too through a series of molecules known as resolvents. And resolvents E1, 2, and 3 are the best characterized to date. And why it is that DHA so far has not been able to confer benefit is very puzzling. I think no one really knows why. But some of the current thinking about this involves the following. I mean, both of these polyunsaturated long-chain fatty acids are able to incorporate themselves into cell membranes. And they do so because they substitute themselves for other fatty acids within the lipid bilayer. But EPA has been found to stabilize cell membranes, whereas DHA, for some doggone reason, appears to disrupt it. Now, the three-dimensional conformation of DHA is very different. It's wider than EPA. So that probably plays a role because, you know, biophysically, you have to think on a molecular level. If you're wider or longer, that's really going to impact what the overall configuration of a molecule is going to be within a confined space. And a lipid bilayer is certainly a confined space. Now, the other thing about DHA is, for some reason, and we don't yet know, and this has been shown in a couple of animal models, when you treat an animal model with DHA, this can actually lead to the downregulation of alzinal receptors on the surface of the pedicides. DHA is a critical brain nutrient. We know that In the absence of DHA availability, there can be horrible brain malformations congenitally. But bottom line is, so far, the evidence shows that EPA is clearly beneficial. DHA does not appear to be. But why DHA is not is absolutely puzzling, given the many good things it can do, aside from the potential disruptive effect it can have in cell membranes, and despite the fact that it increases expression of the LDL receptor. Because remember, inflammation is a very powerful influence in all forms of disease, and these two molecules both play a very prominent role in resolving inflammation. Dr. Turk, that was truly incredible. And I think a lot of people really cluster omega-3s into just one homogenous group. But as you so clearly outlined, the nuances are incredibly important and subtle, but really there and really real. So we wanted to shift gears a little bit and get into some of the trial data in support of a lot of what you were talking about. One of the major trials that really started the discussion for omega-3s used in the clinical setting was the JELUS trial. Lisa, do you mind giving us a brief overview of the JELUS trial and how that started to figure into things? I'd love to. So to review, the JELIS was the first major clinical trial evaluating EPA alone 
It was a prospective open-label trial studying EPA at 1.8 grams per day. And to put this into context for our listeners, this was a much higher dose than previously studied for trials for EPA. It included about 18,000 Japanese patients with high cholesterol on low-intensity statins. And the results showed an impressive 19% relative risk reduction in composite outcomes. But I have to put this trial into context of clinical practice today. This trial came out in 2007, and there was inadequate background preventive therapy when we compare it to modern standards. For example, statin therapy constituted pravastatin 10 milligrams or simvastatin 5 milligrams, which are low-intensity statins, which resulted in the mean LDL cholesterol of the study population to be above 180 milligrams per deciliter. Despite being positive, the use of highly purified EPA was not widely accepted. Dr. Toth, what do you think are the limitations of the JELUS trial? Well, JELUS was a very interesting study, of course. It was a positive study, but it's true that the average dose of simvastatin was only 5 milligrams and the average dose of pravastatin was only 10 milligrams. It was a blending of both primary and secondary prevention. And of course, given the fact that it was performed in Japan, it was an open-label study design. So it was not your usual double-blind placebo-controlled study because in Japan, it is felt that it is unethical to not let the patient know what they're taking. So that would be a weakness. I think the underdosing of statins, and this is even given the fact that in people of Asian ancestry, certainly you can use half as much statin, typically for most statins, as compared to European Caucasian populations. So I think by any standard, the statin dosing was quite low. And then, of course, there's the added complication that the Japanese people already eat more fish per capita than virtually any other population in the world. And so being able to carefully adjust for not only the daily dosing of EPA, but also the amount of EPA, and in this case, they're going to be ingesting a significant amount of DHA as well. This does introduce some level of complication, but ultimately the trial was positive and did show benefit. Thanks for going through that, Dr. Toth. I think, as you say, it's important to acknowledge, you know, what are the shortcomings of the trial, but what are the potential takeaways still? You know, we're in a different realm and a different phase of cardiovascular prevention than we were back in 2007. But that doesn't mean the JELUS trial doesn't have anything to teach us. And one of the things that you mentioned, you know, it's a positive trial using a purified EPA product. And that forms the basis for a lot of the future trials regarding EPA. Before we dive into the main trial that we're going to be discussing today, which is the Reduce-It trial, Dr. Toph, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about the drug that Reduce-It was focused on, namely ethyl, a purified EPA molecule, and a little bit of some of the early data behind it prior to being used in Reduce-It. Sure. So ethyl, as you've already mentioned, Tommy, is a highly, highly purified form of EPA. And we knew early on from the Marine trial, which included patients with so-called severe hypertriglyceridemia, triglycerides 500 to less than 2,000, that icosapentaethyl was able to reduce triglycerides in these patients by about a third. And what was really amazing about this reduction was that it did so without raising LDL. And this was really quite a conundrum for a long time because a lot of people had difficulty believing it. But there's no question that unlike an EPA-DHA combination therapy where as you drop the triglycerides, you're going to see a proportionate rise in LDL because mechanistically, the EPA, the DHA, they function as PPAR-alpha agonists, which means that you're going to activate PPAR-alpha and you're going to promote lipoprotein lipase production, which is the predominant enzyme in serum that hydrolyzes the triglycerides within the core of triglyceride-rich lipoproteins like BLDL and IDL. And it's lipoprotein lipase that helps to release the fatty acid and allow for cells to take them up and use them as oxidizable substrate for ATP biosynthesis using oxidative phosphorylation. But what else does a PPAR-alpha agonist do? Well, it's going to downregulate apoprotein C3, 
which is a very important inhibitor of lipoprotein lipase. It's going to upregulate apoprotein C2, an activator of lipoprotein lipase. So as this occurs, yes, you're going to be promoting more triglyceride hydrolysis, but you're also going to be promoting the conversion of BLDL to IDL and then LDL. And then, of course, LDL goes up. So that was the canonical thinking as to why when you use a combination preparation of EPA-DHA, LDL goes up in proportion to the magnitude of the triglyceride elevation. But with icosaclens ethyl, this was not the case. You did not see elevations in LDL, and yet the triglyceride still went down by a third. So this was felt to be a big advantage because when you look at fibrates, you look at EPA-DHA, they consistently increase LDL in proportion to the magnitude of the triglyceride elevation. Well, if you're a cardiologist and you're working with patients who are in secondary prevention and you're worried about what their LDL is doing, you really didn't want to give them something that actually increased their LDL. So the marine trial showed us very nicely that icosapentaethyl was the exception. And so the FDA did approve icosapentaethyl as a treatment for severe hypertriglyceridemia. And then another study called ANCHOR, which looked at patients with more moderate elevations in triglycerides of 200 to 500, this study was able to demonstrate a 22% reduction in serum triglycerides, but again, without raising LDL and with reductions in high-sensitivity C-reactive protein. So this was quite a boon. It was innovative. It was new, unexpected, and I think it raised not only therapeutic interest, but also scientific curiosity. So marine and anchor show that icosipent ethyl esters reduce triglycerides. And as we discussed with your beautiful summary before, triglycerides are related to atherosclerosis and atherosclerotic events. So now the stage is set for an icosipent ethyl ester cardiovascular outcomes trial. Enter, reduce it. So to review, the REDUCE-IT trial was a large trial of greater than 8,000 patients, including 70% with established ASCBD and 30% primary prevention high-risk patients, that is, those with diabetes and multiple other cardiac risk factors, all with fasting triglycerides between 135 to 499 milligrams per deciliter. They were randomized to either icosipment ethyl 4 grams per day or a placebo and followed for over five years. Importantly, all of the patients were on statin therapy, with additional azetamide that was added for at least four weeks prior to qualifying measurements for randomization, and had an LDL cholesterol of between 40 to 100 milligrams per deciliter, a median of about 75. This trial excluded patients with severe liver disease, severe pancreatitis, severe heart failure, A1Cs greater than 10%, anyone who had planned coronary revascularization or a hypersensitivity to fish or shellfish. Amazing summary, Elisa. So Dr. Teleth, now as you said, we've got biologic plausibility, we've got scientific curiosity, and now we have the randomized controlled trial here in Reduce It. Can you comment a little bit on what Reduce It found, what the key findings were? Sure. And so I think in contradistinction to Jealous, which set the stage for things, we see a much more rigorous attempt to demonstrate the efficacy of glycosapent ethyl here, because now you're talking about a trial where everyone is on modern contemporary standards of statin therapy, as well as background therapy for their various risk factors. It is double-blind, placebo-controlled, and the patients have, unlike in Japanese trials, have absolutely no idea what they're taking because the placebo is also oily in the form of mineral oil. So the median follow-up was about 4.9 years. The primary composite endpoint was 5-point MACE, which included cardiovascular mortality, non-fatal amide, non-fatal stroke, coronary vascularization, and the need for hospitalization for unstable angina. And actually, the primary composite endpoint had a p-value with, I believe, nine zeros. And if you think about it, when was the last time you saw a contemporary cardiovascular outcomes trial, especially against a statin background, have a p-value that is this extraordinarily low? And the answer is never. 
So when we look at the risk reduction, it's 25% for a relative risk reduction. But what I think is amazing is that the NMT was 21. Now, if you think back to the Jupiter trial, for the Jupiter trial, the primary composite endpoint also had an NMT of 21. The Jupiter was placebo control. This is an active comparator study with a statin control. So this is pretty remarkable that an NMT of just 21 is achieved with the primary composite endpoint and a p-value that is simply incredible. For the secondary composite endpoint, we have three-point race, which is all hard endpoints, which included non-fatal amide, non-fatal stroke, and cardiovascular mortality. And here we see a relative risk reduction of 26%, with an absolute risk reduction of 3.5% and an NMT of 28 I'm also going to highlight the fact that for the primary composite endpoint, the absolute risk reduction was 4.8%. Those are big numbers, big numbers. So when we look at the pre-specified hierarchical testing for the individual endpoints, it's pretty doggone impressive. You're looking at a 31% reduction in fatal, non-fatal MI. You're looking at a 35% reduction in urgent or emergent revascularization and a 20% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. Wow, fatal, non-fatal stroke, 28%. Hospitalization around stable angina, 32%. Now, if I'm a patient with high triglycerides and I've had an event or I've had a stent, I'm looking at these data going, my goodness, this is pretty impressive. So what else needs to be viewed here? Well, benefit was consistent across all pre-specified subgroups. And amazingly, the benefit was independent of either baseline or attained LDL or triglyceride. And the other thing that I find really interesting here is that the median LDL was 75, mean LDL of 65, and even showed about a one-third reduction in sudden death. These are extraordinary numbers. And I guess I cannot overemphasize how important this study is. Yeah, just hearing you talk about the data and then level of depth, Dr. Toth, it really puts in perspective how important this was and the change in perspective it had for cardiovascular prevention enthusiasts and really practitioners of all types. And so hoping to get a little bit more of your thoughts on what drove this effect. And was this risk reduction related completely to triglyceride reduction specifically? What other possible mechanisms of action do you think are driving the cardiovascular benefits here seen with icosapenethyl? And how do things like hypertriglyceridemia, for example, factor in? Yeah, all great questions. And so, as I mentioned, the benefit in reduce it actually turned out to be independent of either the baseline or the attained level of triglyceride, which was very surprising. And no change in any lipid component was responsible for the level of risk reduction we see across the board. And the other important thing to emphasize here is that reduce is the first prospective randomized clinical trial ever to show an incremental cardiovascular mortality benefit over and above background statin therapy. So what the heck is going on? And you know, a lot of people poo-poo pleiotropic effects by statins, and, and that's fine. But it does look like, in the case of icosapentethyl, pleiotropic effects are major drivers. Now, I want to emphasize that CRP is but one measure of systemic inflammation, and it is not specific to vascular inflammation, as all of you know. There are hundreds of genes involved in the inflammatory cascades that we witness operative in pathology. So there are many, many signals. There are toll-like receptors. There are interleukin cytokines. There's growth factors. There are signals that promote intracellular recognition, adhesion molecules. There are signals that promote what we call eat-me pathways, where a macrophage recognizes debris or necrotic debris and has to clear it. This is a remarkably complex area. And as I've already suggested to you, EPA is a major driver of resolving inflammation. 
And we know that inflammation plays a very significant role in acute cardiovascular events because if a plaque is inflamed, it's more vulnerable to fissure or rupture, giving rise to acute events. The prevailing opinion now is that EPA exerts profound effects on one or more of the pathways involved in inflammation, and that this effect is enough to be able to stabilize plaque enough that you're not seeing these events. We know that EPA can be antioxidative. It's anti-inflammatory. There's a long list. It's going to take a long time to prove this, but so far it does appear to account for the data in the best way. Wow. So, so many different ways in which it's possibly causing these very robust and favorable outcomes that we're seeing and reduce it. Within the context of these results, can you review the safety and tolerability of the high-dose EPA preparation? In clinical trials, apart from efficacy, we're also looking at safety outcomes. So are there any adverse effects that we should be worried about with high-dose purified EPA? Yeah, Lisa, there were a couple of things that I think stand out. But when we look at treatment emergent adverse events in the drug or placebo arms, the numbers are very similar. There is a higher trend with rates of bleeding at 2.7 versus 2.1% in the placebo versus placebo arm. We know that EPA has antiplatelet effects. And, you know, I think it would be unreasonable for anyone to say that that probably doesn't contribute to the overall benefit because we know that antiplatelet agents are profoundly beneficial to patients with underlying atherosclerotic disease. So that is yet another potential benefit that the EPA exerts, not only anti-inflammatory and antioxidative, but also antithrombotic effects. This, of course, can leave one with a mild excess risk for bleeding. But what's important to point out is that there were no significant intracranular GI bleeds and no fatal bleeds. So that's very reassuring. There was a statistically significant increase in rates for hospitalization for atrial fibrillation and atrial clutter at 3.1% versus 2.1% with a significant p-value of 0.004. But, you know, I've talked to many EP specialists about this and no one, no one can really account for this. There's nothing that can explain it. There's some other trials with fish oil that have also shown this. My guess is that probably you are not precipitating ventricular arrhythmias because as I mentioned, you do reduce risk of sudden death by about a third. So there's a small 1% absolute increase in risk for a flutter, a fib. But reassuringly, if you look at the data, there's no excess risk for stroke. In fact, the stroke reduction was 28%. So although there's a slight increase in risk for AFib, flutter. there's no signal for stroke. And then there was also a slight imbalance in terms of peripheral edema, but actually there was no adverse impact renal filtration indices such as GFR or serum creatinine. Really incredible overview there, Dr. Toth. And again, it's, you know, it's important to keep in mind some of these adverse effects. AFib in particular has gotten a lot of press and getting your perspective on that and what might be driving that is really interesting. Certainly more to learn there. One other thing that has been a little bit controversial is the choice of comparator in a non-inert mineral oil. Would love to get your thoughts on this, Dr. Toth. Any commentary there? Sure. And yeah, there has certainly been some debate, some controversy surrounding this. And, you know, one of the arguments is that, well, the mineral oil arm experienced a five milligram per deciliter net increase in LDL and a six milligram per deciliter net increase in serum triglyceride. Did the mineral oil placebo cause diarrhea and impair statin absorption, thereby leading to a less robust LDL reduction? Was the mineral oil pro-inflammatory in the patients given the placebo? Let's address that a little bit. When you look at the Kaplan-Meier survival curves for patients who did or did not experience these changes in their LDL, their triglyceride, there was no difference in risk of an event. That was looked at, and it was looked at very comprehensively by the FDA. When they looked at patients who did or did not have diarrhea, they found no between-group differences in terms of lipids or 
statin absorption. The inflammatory piece is, I think, a little bit clouded by the fact that there was a lot of intrapatient variability because they measured CRP on three occasions during the course of the trial. But there was a lot of intrapatient variability, which would actually make it very difficult to tell whether or not there was this clinically meaningful change in CRP levels. Now, we also know that this mineral oil was tested, was highly pure, and the FDA and the European drugs agencies agreed that it was inert. The conclusion on the part of the FDA and the European drugs agency is that the mineral oil control did not throw the trial one way or the other, did not lead to an exaggeration of benefit in the icosapent ethyl arm because it exerted some sort of toxic side effect. And so I think it's time that we accept what the FDA and the European Drugs Agency has concluded because many eyes were set on this because it's extremely important that as clinicians, we not poison the water in a way that turns either clinicians or patients off from a life-saving therapy. And was icosapent ethyl life-saving therapy in the Reducer trial? Yes, when you're the only drug that's ever shown a cardiovascular mortality reduction against a statin background, and all of your primary, secondary, and tertiary endpoints are positive and glaringly positive, we don't want to eliminate therapy that is this extraordinarily impactful. And to argue that the trial should be repeated using a corn oil placebo is completely unreasonable because everybody knows money is not infinite. The trial, it was extremely well done. It's been looked at over and over. You're not going to repeat this study using the corn oil placebo. It's not going to happen. So that's my response to the naysayers, Rick. No, that's great, Dr. Toth. And I think, as you say, there's the hypothetical idealized world where you know, maybe there could be a different placebo that you could use. And I'd be interested to hear what your thoughts would be on that placebo. And then there's the real world where we have this study that's a high quality study with the, that's randomized controlled data that has these incredibly positive endpoints. So I think it's about taking those two things together when we think about who should be getting this treatment and the potential benefits of this treatment. Yep, I agree, Tony. So on the basis of Reduce It, the FDA did approve the use of icosapent ethyl for ASCVD risk reduction as an adjunct to statin therapy in patients with triglycerides over 150 milligrams per deciliter for secondary prevention in those with established ASCVD or for primary prevention in those with diabetes and multiple risk factors. Now, we've talked a lot about placebo and we've talked a lot about EPA. And I think those conversations are a nice springboard to the next large randomized control trial that came out, which is a strength trial. This used high doses of both EPA and DHA, four grams per day, and a carboxylic acid formulation. Now, we've discussed this before, but again, I'd love to get your opinion, Dr. Toth. How does this trial differ from Reduce It? And how do the results differ from Reduce It? Well, most importantly, this trial used a combination of EPA and DHA in the omega-3 treatment arm, slightly larger, 13,000 patients. Again, of course, perspective, double-blind, and everybody's at statin background therapy, and all the patients are high risk as they were in reducing. But consistent with what we've seen with at least a dozen, a dozen other EPA-DHA combination therapy trials, there was no benefit. And in fact, the Kaplan-Meier survival curves were beautifully superimposable, and the Data Safety Monitoring Board deemed that it would basically be a waste to continue the trial because the odds of it being positive were remote. That's really helpful, Dr. Toth. And, you know, having these two big omega-3 trials, one positive, one negative, there's been a lot of questions as to how do we reconcile these two trials. Lisa, I know you were going to talk a little bit about uh, secondary analysis on the strength trial. Do you want to talk about that here? Yeah, sure. So, you know, reduce it has EPA, strength has EPA and DHA combination. And there was a secondary analysis of strength, which was titled the association between achieved omega fatty acid levels and major adverse cardiovascular outcomes in patients with high cardiovascular risk. 
and it attempted to address some of the issues that have been brought up when we compare strength and reduce it. The authors of this secondary analysis pointed out that the achieved levels of EPA in the strength trial was likely related to the carboxylic acid derivative, which is better absorbed. So they said that the formulation used in the strength trial was a better absorbed version of EPA. However, despite that, that those in the highest tertile of EPA blood levels did not show a significant cardiovascular outcomes benefit that was seen in the reduce it. Now, conversely, you know, there's a lot of talk about how DHA may be detrimental or harmful or whether there was like a balance between the benefit of EPA versus the harms of DHA. So in this analysis, they showed that those in the highest tertile of the DHA blood levels did not suffer any worse cardiovascular outcomes. And so this elegant analysis debunked one of the hypotheses, which is that the potential harm that has been time and again spoken about from the DHA that was used in strength and whether that resulted in the negative results of the strength trial in contrast to reduce it. And they seem to suggest that that is not something that probably is responsible, but rather in reduce it, the effects of EPA alone is what resulted in the benefit. Yeah, I think it's very important to point out that we've never seen a DHA monotherapy prospective randomized clinical trial ever. So we don't know what DHA monotherapy would do. So I think it's great that the strength investigators looked at the highest tertile of DHA. Well, you have to remember, there's also EPA in the blood at the same time. We don't know what DHA would do all by itself. But I think what the meta-analyses clearly suggest that EPA DHA has a neutral effect on cardiovascular risk. And we have two trials with EPA monotherapy with Jealous and Reduce It showing significant net benefit in both trials. Now, other important differences to point out would be that Reduce It had a larger proportion of secondary prevention patients, 71 versus 56. So you may have been able to see a higher net number of events. It was, of course, EPA versus a combination of EPA-DHA, the latter of which has never been shown to work. Is the DHA harmful? Well, you know, we can't call it a toxin, really, because it's a critical brain nutrient. Uh, DHA does regulate very important anti-inflammatory effects with protectins and marisins and a variety of other small pro-resolving molecules. So I can't call it a toxin, but what else is it doing? I mean, you can't say it's a good thing if it completely neutralizes any benefit of EPA, which is what we see consistently. And then, of course, some people have argued about the non-neutral comparator, namely the mineral oil, but I have already addressed that. Thank you, Dr. Toth. That puts a lot of perspective for us when, you know, when we're getting to see, hear about these two trials, what the combination of that is or what your thoughts on that are. So given all of this, the clinical outcomes, the safety data, all of the information that we've received from Reduce It, as well as the strength trial, bottom line, where do you stand on long-chain omega-3 polyunsaturated fatty acids? Have the results of Reduce It and now the strength trial changed your clinical practice? And are there recommendations from national societies regarding any of these agents that you could tell to our listeners? Yes, most certainly. So the Reduce It trial coupled with Jealous showed me that EPA is in fact beneficial Strength coupled with at least a dozen other large prospective randomized clinical outcome trials showed me that the combination of EPA and DHA has no cardiovascular benefit. So do I use ethyl in my practice? And the answer is, of course I do. This is an extremely important drug in our antilipidemic armamentarium because not only are we reducing risk of MI, stroke, need for revascularization, hospitalization, unstable angina, but we also have a reduction in cardiovascular mortality, which no other drug has been able to show over and above statin therapy. And so consistent with what I've said, we now know that the American Diabetes Association, the European Society of Cardiology, the European Atherosclerosis Society, National Lipid Association, they have all endorsed the use of ethyl in their recommendations when approaching patients who require incremental reduction in their risk for ASCVD. Thank you so much for that endorsement, Dr. Toth. And I think it's important to know that 
these are the national societies. This is what they think of this product. And I think that helps a lot when you're thinking about what you're going to do in the clinic. And on that note, let's get back to our patients here. You know, when you're in clinic, who are the patients you think about starting a cosipinethyl on? When do you add it in the sequence of your clinical care? Do you think about the increased risk of AFib and bleeding, especially as risk factors for AFib or potentially stroke overlap with those for ACVD? Just talk us through how you actually practically implement this in the clinical setting. Yeah. So, Tommy, that's a great question, especially with the bleeding, because this gentleman just got another LADDES. So he's on dual antiplatelet therapy, and we already talked about how the icosapent ethyl can exacerbate bleeding risk. However, this is a very sick individual with an enormous five and 10 year risk for recurrent events. And the fact that with an LDL of 60, he's still got another stent tells me we have a long way to go toward reducing his residual risk. So in a case like this, let pull out all the stops. Yeah, I'm going to ram his LDL through the floor, but I'm also not going to leave the level of risk reduction that reduce it shows us in a very patient like this on the table. I am going to intervene with icosapentethyl and his mortality risk is huge. I am going to explain to him, yep, because you're on dual antiplatelet therapy, adding fish oil here could increase your risk of bleeding, but we'll monitor it very closely. And if there are adjustments that need to be made, we will make them. I am not going to say, well, let's try lifestyle and exercise for six months and then recheck your triglycerides. I want the risk reduction now, and I will urge him to couple lifestyle and exercise with the icosapentethyl. And um, sure, you can ask yourself, why is this patient's triglycerides at 200? Alcohol can be a contributing factor. There are other contributing secondary causes. You definitely want to rule out thyroid dysfunction. But bottom line is he's diabetic and that triglyceride value of 200 is very likely to be real. So yeah, by all means, incorporate lifestyle and exercise. But bottom line is it takes time to relieve insulin resistance. We know that insulin resistance exacerbates serum triglyceride levels because insulin resistance inhibits lipoprotein lipase, he needs help today. He needed it yesterday, and I do not give this six months for lifestyle and exercise. The perspective on atrial fibrillation risk, again, will I inform the patient about this 1% excess risk? And the answer is, sure, you have to lay the cards on the table. But on the other hand, when I look at the event rate reductions in reducent, and I ask myself, what other drug can give me this for a patient with this risk profile? And the answer is no other drug can give me this. And so I'm going to go with it. And I'm going to make sure the patient understands the risks, but also understands very clearly what the range of benefit is. Such an incredible perspective, Dr. Toth, and really helpful to broadening our understanding of the trial, reduce it. It's comparator trials like strength and the drug itself. I, I think I've certainly taken a lot away from this today, and I know my colleagues have as well. So that concludes our fifth episode in our triglyceride series. And I wanted to thank all of our guests here, Aliza, Dr. Toth, just an incredible episode. I've learned so much, and I can't wait to share this with the listeners. Tommy, Aliza, Rick, and... Ahmed in the background, you guys are wonderful. I want to thank you for hosting me tonight. And I wish each one of you absolutely the best and the greatest. And I hope you rip up the roads in the years ahead because you guys are the future of cardiovascular medicine. God bless you all. Beep. Beep.